Judges and Oracle Radio. Some music writers noted the 77th birthday of the great songwriter and troubadour Warren Zevon earlier this week. Uh, Zevon actually died two decades ago, age 56, another one of my dubious heroes that I've outlived, hooray, both in final age and in linear time, which is the only time we can measure. I don't know about anybody else, but I maintain a background awareness of these things. I guess it started when I was young, noticing how many of my musical and poetic heroes died young. A whole bunch were gone before they turned 30, Hank Williams Sr. especially, aged 29, with his best and most lasting work done in those last years of his 20s, which is sad to realize when you get to 30. Hank Williams, why are we talking about Hank Williams? Because he was immensely gifted and blessed by the poet's muse, the hillbilly Shakespeare, they called him. But we were talking about Warren Zevon. Anybody who knew me in the late 1980s through to the late 1990s knew I usually had a Warren Zevon disc in the five CD changer or stacked up on the record player. His 1996 collection, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead, has Frank and Jesse James, Desperados Under the Eaves, Roland, the Headless Thompson Gunner, Hasten Down the Wind, the live version of Muhammad's Radio, Accidentally Like a Martyr, Carmelita. Two and a half hours of beautifully performed and recorded songs pulled off his 10 albums he put out by 1996. But by 2003, he had passed on, which made me realize that 20 years have now passed since a strange time when lots of people were suddenly crazy about web blogs. Blogs. At the height of the web blog hype, which was mostly self-congratulatory, there were parties for bloggers. And Brian Lenz, an independent movie producer and blogger himself, had a party at his house in the Hollywood Hills mid-2002, I believe, and Warren Zevon was there. Brian told me beforehand, my friend Warren says he'll be there, you better come. I did not go to the party. Everybody said Warren Zevon was great, talked to people, cheerful, looking healthy and strong. The cancer took him a year later. I did not go to the party because the blogging stuff was starting to smell to me. Too much hype, too little income, as usual, for me. Plus, everybody was getting very political, earnestly political. And I've just never been able to believe any of that stuff. I started covering local and county politics when I was a teenager. And I'd see how the guy who previously went bankrupt with like a carpet warehouse suddenly had millions of dollars and lived in the big mansion at the top of the hill. And it didn't really matter what party they were in. So 
I'd rather read E.O. Wilson describing how nearly all human social and political behavior is pretty much the same as life in an ant colony with just as much thought, none. But what is blogging, anyway? And why was there any hype about it? Weblogs appeared in the last half of the 1990s and were just updates to a website, usually with the latest updates up top. October 13, added new photographs of my computer to the computer photos page, that kind of thing. There was this old hippie, whole earth catalog kind of guy, Yorn Berger, Yorn Barger, And he was adding his thoughts on James Joyce and hypertext theory, and he called it a weblog. By 1999, LiveJournal had begun the teen diary phase. And then there was Blogger and really simple syndication, RSS, all these systems being personal projects, more or less. And I started using the Blogger software myself in the year 2000 after many years of hand-coding my pages. I figured it was the ideal tool for covering stories with an ongoing narrative. So that's how I covered the Republican presidential convention in Philadelphia that summer and how we covered the uh, Al Gore nomination at the Democrats convention in Los Angeles. Who's the we? You may be wondering. Well, I've got my dear friend and frequent co-conspirator Matt Welch on the line from New York City. How you doing, Matt? I'm just doing fantastic uh, remembering your piece about Wookiee families. <laughs> oh, man. What, what was that exactly? So Al Gore in his big speech is, uh, you know, uh, accepting the nomination instead of doing the John Kerry salute reporting for duty in 2004. He talked a lot about working families. Uh, I'm going to do everything I can about working families. He kept repeating it over and over again. And you wrote a column um, saying, you know, I just think that it's great that someone's finally sticking up for Wookiee families. And he spent the entire thing taking it absolutely serious as if he was talking about Wookiee families. And that's because he was doing that that fake Southern accent yep. that he would turn on, you know, like if he was in a black church. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, he was uh, was part of his uh, Nate, one of the Naomi's was advising him back then to like wear muted Klein? colors, Klein, Wolf, Klein, Wolf, I think, uh, in the original. Um, and uh, and so he was trying to like relate to humans and, and Tipper Gore. Uh, if you'll recall, I know you scrubbed it from your memory, but she had a whole drums for Tipper thing to show that she was cool and like the Grateful Dead. <laughs> this is the one who, who tried to outlaw. Prince records. Yeah, and Jello Biafra and, and yeah. Frank Zappa and whatnot, yes. Wookiee families. Now that's owned by Disney, you know, the Wookiee that's families. It's damn shame. The, the Wookiees went woke. Uh, so you pretty quickly saw the usefulness of, of a system that you could just type into with a spot for a headline and it would post it to the top of your website with a little date and timestamp. No, no coding required, one-step publishing. And for most of that year, or the second half of that year, I guess, I was an evangelist for the stuff because most of my friends were writers of one kind or another, and it was liberating to just write and publish, which is always tough to do when you're an ambitious writer who wasn't born into money. 
I didn't go to an Ivy League school or any school at all in my case. So I set up custom blogs and websites for many occasions, many people. The mattwelch.com website, that was an early one. I think we used Homesite for that as the uh, publishing software originally. Yes, 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 uh, which was a great... Well, that was to build the pages. Right. And then then we we integrated blogger code into it, but they all had a separate design. So yours, I made like turquoise and Mm off-white, and you had a little black and white picture of you. In, stupid, in a, stupid in a straw hat, hat. A, Cuban, <laughs> a Cuban hat, right? Yeah. Uh, the day after my wedding, I was totally hungover. Uh, my wife, uh, it's been forgotten by history a little bit too much, but she started basically the first French blog at the time. She was correspondent for Liberation. That's right. And was, and was covering Silicon Valley as well as Hollywood. And I once went uh, to a conference with her, I think, in the early aughts or something in France. And she was hailed as the uh, the French, like, uh, god blogger or godmother of blogs or something. Which yeah. yeah. Pretty fun. To this day, she's known as the, the French Andrew Sullivan. <laughs> no, that's not true. I'm <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry, Emmanuel. Um, Dave Barry, that's another one I made. You made his? Okay, wow. His His first one. And then they integrated that into the Miami Herald site. And that became his job because he was sick of doing a column. We would meet Dave Barry, who's an American hero, at the political conventions. He'd yeah. always go and he'd write a daily column for the uh, this sort of like made just for the convention daily paper thing. That was actually pretty good, but mostly because it had his column in it and the schedule of the day's events. And he would basically seek us out. And I got a just, you know, shout out to anyone who was seeking you and me out in 2000 and 2004. We were a rare taste, let's say, um, but he was very, very sweet uh, with us. And I remember he get me on the phone in 2004 in maybe it was the Boston uh, Democratic Boston, Convention. that's right. That was, I did not go to that. And back then uh, in 2004, like, okay, this is the first convention to be blogged, right? This is, uh, even though it wasn't because you did the first blog, I think, of any uh, convention in 2000. We both worked on the, on the 2001 for online journalism review at a USC. Correct. And, and your, it's specifically your work in, in uh, the Republican one in Philadelphia, I think was the first of that. And maybe Mickey Kaus was also doing it. But uh, Dave Barry gets me on the phone. It's like, so what's it feel like to be a blogger over and over again? <laughs> And in fact, now that I'm remembering it, I interviewed him at the 2004 convention. And while I was interviewing him, we were like in those crappy little uh, journalist bar things that you have. And I and I opened up a can of Budweiser and uh, stuck my uh, finger down oh, yeah. in the hole. You cut your finger. And just cut it. It was just uh. gushing blood. And I was recording it. And uh, and he started doing a play-by-play of, of me sucking the blood out of my finger. It really made for a, a top-quality interview. Yes, which which I think went into the Reason Magazine hit and run blog. Yes. This yes, dredging up a lot of unfortunate memories. Our journalist buddy, Tim Blair, in Australia, too, he secretly contributed to this online newspaper I started in uh, 1997, tabloid.net, which you also edited and wrote for, a tale for another day. But we, we made his blog. Mm-hmm. And then you and I also set up what later became known as as a uh, multi-author blog. Mm-hmm. And I looked this up 
on the internet this week, and it says that that was invented in uh, 2012 or something. Oh, no. multi-author blogs were invented in 2012? Yeah, it's, I mean, everything on the internet is wrong now. LA Examiner, laexaminer.com, that was the first city news blog that I'm aware of, uh, years before Gothamist and Gawker and LA is years, you know? We started that at the beginning of the end April, of 2000 or beginning of 2001. April 2001 is when we pulled the trigger on it to begin with. And it was uh, me and you and three or four of our friends we've known for a long time and done jackassy media things with. And what was great is that we made it totally anonymous. And uh, in terms of uh, like there weren't any bylines, we linked to absolutely everybody doing media in Los Angeles Partly just so we can keep track of it, but also we wanted to see who who would uh, uh, ego surf <laughs> themselves. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it turns out it. everybody. Yeah, well, Kathy Seip even quicker than everybody, uh, yeah. unsurprisingly. But uh, it was it was fun. The other uh, one that was kind of similar and it came out right around the same time was here in New York. There was the Smarter Times that Ira Stoll and a couple other guys started, and it was just sort of uh, bitching about the New York Times. Oh yeah, we, yeah. That was the, and, the media criticism one. Yes. Uh, ours was, you know, we did media criticism. We basically poked fun at the L.A. Times uh, on a, a pretty regular basis. But also we we're just, hey, look, there's a, a great piece in this local thing that you would have no idea about. But here it is. You know, here's Gustavo Ariano doing something funny and good. Or like Shaq and Kobe did something funny today. We would sort of write right. about those things uh, together. It was less media centric. But this all came sort of weirdly interesting in 2002 and we'd let it kind of go up and down and maybe I'm jumping the, the line a little bit, but September 11th kind of. Threw well, that's everything. where we're going. Yeah. Is, um, um, it was under the radar in those first six, 10 months or whatever. You and I were both freelancing mostly for the online journalism review at USC. This was a web publication that they started. They were pretty forward thinking about such things. They started it, I believe, in 1998. And it was about online journalism. Lots of hand wringing, you know, very common then and now. They were troubled by the Drudge Report, troubled by the implications, uh, concerned about fact-checking. I think me and you were uh, interjecting a lot of like, hey, look, a lot of people are having fun and doing interesting well, things. Yeah. yeah, and that's why Bob Shear mostly insisted that we stayed around. Yeah. Uh, God bless him, because the rest of them wanted us dead. Yeah. Uh, they, were, they were uneasy about people who hadn't been properly vetted by uh, a graduate degree in covering city council meetings and a for-profit media corporation. You know, they were they were troubled by people just writing words and posting them as writers and poets have done for millennia. But they had money and we had to pay rent. I think they paid us about $800 a column. Yeah. I mean, towards the, that's after good money. Boy, that was great. I was also working at the time for... Bob Shear's son, Chris Shear, at uh, the website of a telephone company 
the website was called workingforchange.com. We used to oh, yeah, I remember that. You yeah. used to call working for spare change. Yes. Uh, I, I wrote a column called the $50 outrage because that's how much they pay me every column. That was a good column. I remember dollars. that well. Uh, yeah. And I covered the Nader campaign in 2000 uh, for the, uh, them as well. Oh, so that's is, right. That's right. And then you started freelancing for Reason Magazine, which you're still working for in a different capacity, but still editorial. They were in Santa Monica at the time. You started meeting those people. But, you know, we survived barely. Nobody much noticed us as usual. And then came, as you say, 911. And all of a sudden, everybody could not get enough of the news. Everybody. What was happening? Why? What next? And during those weeks and months afterwards, the regular corporate media seemed unwilling and unable to provide what people wanted. You know, outrage, answers, historical and geopolitical context, anger. That was real. You know, some humor, too, which was illegal after 911 for well, I guess it never came back. <laughs> Nobody's ever really been funny. <laughs> they're just funny now because somebody else says they're not funny. Right. That's the entirety of comedy, which is a lot of fun. We had a baffled new president, George W. Bush, who told Americans to go shopping. I don't like shopping. And I don't have any money for shopping, even if I liked it. I'd spent my adult life to that point getting on a cheap flight to wherever it was happening in the world, wherever I might make a living typing up some articles and drinking away the evenings with people of similar habits. But now, as uh, as Malcolm X has said about America in the 60s, the chickens had come home to roost. And we were there in the roost. And 911 began this torrent of words. Media people with a name brand at the time, like Andrew Sullivan, who we've already mentioned, quickly took to blogging. Lots of people without lucrative personal brands did the same. Many of those people were in and around Los Angeles. We had all these new tools all of a sudden. We'd be very excited when these things would appear, like, uh, remember the page view counters that you oh, could yeah. just put on your page? Oh, we watch those like a hawk. And the commenting systems, we added those into the blogs in these informal networks called blog rolls, originally hand-coded, just like on LA Examiner, just links to everything, like Drudge has done since 97, 96. And our old buddy, Henry Copeland, who we'd worked for in Budapest at the Business Journal, and who wrote about the infamous, uh, or he wrote the infamous Details Magazine article about an earlier collection of adventurous and uh, sometimes degenerate young writers gathered in Prague of 1991. He started this small advertising business that catered to the sudden explosion in blogs, blog ads, Specifically because the, the new big advertising company, Google, and Henry always said, Google's not a search company, it's an advertising company. He said that 20 years before it was conventional wisdom. Uh, he started this little thing called blog ads, which ended up becoming the only way you can make money from 
doing these vlogs. And I have a romantic nature. My personal ideal was always a late night freelancer with that machine gun, IBM Selectric, the radio on, coffee and whiskey at hand. And the blogging life was exactly that for me for a while. Yeah. And because of all the L.A. bloggers and the occasional need to get weird with your comrades, suddenly there were blogger parties. Initially, because you and I, and really mostly Emmanuel, and maybe Ben Sullivan, started crashing the L.A. Press Club bar nights mm-hmm. in Silver Lake. Mm-hmm. Um, those became uh, sooner rather than later kind of blogger parties <laughs> yeah. um, where the outsiders were kind of let in. And it was hilarious to see like an entire, and this is a lot of work of Emmanuel, Kathy Seip, uh, who uh, died like 15 years ago now, and Amy Alcon, but they were already organizing sort of monthly parties when, when someone had a new book out or something like that. LA is a freelancer town. It always has been, always will be. So you had the freelancers that were already existing and then sort of us uh, rabble blogger type of people. And we were already by, I think, 2002 saying we hope to never hear that word again. <laughs> and like yes. the last place we'd want to see it is on our, our gravestone. But uh, we would go and we were all having fun. We were all broke. I mean, brokey McBroke pants broke. And we were having a great time. And then meanwhile, the the legacy institutional media, especially the LA Times, but others as well, just were grumping about everything, especially about the growth of, of new people being able to start their own blogs. It was kind of a hilarious uh, juxtaposition that was going on. So there's a lot of life. It was really fun. And almost immediately, everyone started huffing their own farts, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which is less fun, honestly. I mean, it, it can is. be fun for the first half second, but you could you could feel that coming on it, including people who, you know, had never before been in journalism world or never been kind of like uh, notorious, faint, semi-famous for what their writing is. They would go on, start uh, typing on their blogs and become hugely popular and they would get captured by their audience and turn into kind of monsters. Um, saw this happen more than once. And uh, it can be it can be weird and bad. And this was all kind of happening at the same time. But it was fun to I mean, there was a time when I remember and I don't know why I would know this because I, I wouldn't be obsessively Googling my own first name. But at some point I was like the number six Matt on the Google search, oh, which Lord. is ridiculous. I'm not the number six Matt in of like of this house, probably, let alone uh, the world, because these blogs were way over indexed. And there was just this people were starting these things right and left. And they were pointing to you. Ken said that we're we're blogs. This is 2001 or something. We're going to fact check your ass. That was a quote that people uh, love to talk about. And they were sort of there's this mutual inspiration society that came up. And, you know, I think you have a, a even a more sensitive instinct than I do of like, just as soon as that's like heating up and, and peaking, you kind of want to crawl back over there and get away from all of it, because you could see that this might go to a bad place. And and uh, sadly, I, it, it, I think it did, although it was also it was a it was a great jolt of fun, of meeting new people, of writing, of, of having new audiences, some of which have, have stuck. I mean, I, oh, do a pod, I do a podcast now and a couple of them, but one called The Fifth Column. And I saw people like in the comments talking about when did you first get to it? And someone's like, 
you know, I, I started following uh, Matt and Ken Lane back in the old blogging days and just keep following. <laughs> it's like, that's crazy to me. That's a, what a wonderful thing to have people follow you through the really weird ups and downs uh, since then. Well, it became, I think, during that very brief golden age of something like what the underground press was, what underground FM radio had been before that, pirate radio. And that's, to me, that's always where the fun is. Yep. That brief moment. And it's always brief. That's why I've had 200 jobs, because you gotta, you gotta go. You know, I think right around the time of this famous blogging party, although I might be off by, like we talked about before we uh, went on the air, I've never written about the blogging stuff. It's I've written about some certain things we've done, L.A. Examiner in particular, because that turned into almost a new newspaper in Los Angeles that we were going to run. That was fun. But the blogging thing itself, eh, by the time of the Warren Zevon party, I was just about to quit. Not long after that, I deleted my entire blog and replaced it with a picture of a uh, Willie Nelson bumper sticker from the back of somebody's car. I saw somewhere it said, don't blame me. I voted for Willie Nelson, <laughs> which is evergreen. You can always put that on your car. It's always correct. Yes. Um, and you always did uh, just vote for Willie Nelson. Local city council, Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson. Uh, yeah. right. School board, <laughs> moms for Christ, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we uh, you were also moving to Reno at around that time, too, I think. Um, that's right. That's right. Uh, early 2003. And it was I mean, the the L.A. Examiner process, which was hilarious and great. And neither of us, I can state confidently, regret a second of it. It was just really fun. But it left uh, both of us semi-internet famous and broke, which is a really strange, strange, strange and poignant com- uh, uh, condition to be in for two uh, not as young as they used to be freshly married uh, gentlemen in the in the profession of writing. So it was a uh, it was a little bit challenging coming out of it. And also, like you wanted to be able to do other things besides just late night typing. You wanted to do other types of reporting or existing or, or tracking stuff down. Like you're right in you know, sharks got to keep swimming and swimming forward. And you could see already, I think I wrote a piece in 2004 for a reason called a farewell to war blogging, uh, which is uh, sadly a word that I've now been officially uh, <laughs> declared by a Wikipedia of having coined. Oh that's my what God. I, oh, I'm I call, sorry. I, I called my blog the war blog uh, and uh, that was on the little HTML and uh, should hasten to point out it wasn't like because I want to go to war. The first post that I had there was some September 14th, 2001 um, and the title of it was Welcome to War and it wasn't like because we're going to war. It's, It's because that was just an act of war that happened to us and like the sooner you think about it that way. Um, the more you're going to sort of like uh, face harsh reality. It was wrong about plenty of that stuff. But a lot of people got very excited about the word. And there was a brief moment in which it felt like the way that this 
new crop of people were approaching news and commentary felt like it could be a little bit post-partisan. It could be injecting more humor, which is you and I have been looking for forever in, in, in old media. Um, there seemed to be possibilities of just kind of like shaking up the snow globe in a way that was going to be interesting. You could already tell by 2004 that those many of those early adherents, most of the most famous ones, were just going back into new ruts. Yes. Using uh, or the old ruts using the new systems. And that was much less interesting. It was, it was talk radio. It was, do you like the Patriot channel or the communist channel? Yeah. And won't we turn on the nice classical music channel and not hear any of that? Yeah. And uh, so I was out by 04. I quit, I quit writing for about two years during that time. I wrote, you always write. We made some rock and roll records. That's right. I cleared my head, had some children. And then since I was still broke, the more ambitious people with financial resources, like our friend Nick Denton, when the time came, I, you know, had to go crawling to Nick Denton and say, hey, you got a job for me at this blog company that you've based on our work, which he was always very open about yeah. doing I mean, and keep reformulating uh, his version in his brain of what tabloid was <laughs> tabloid.net yeah. yeah. which and and he made and and he made that work and employed you know hundreds of people over the years and until what happens they start thinking that they're the the kings of the revolution and that's right about when they're going to be dragged out to the guillotine so I hung around there in different capacities until 2014 when I said, I got to get out. This whole thing is a house of cards is coming down. And I got out about a year ahead of the shutdown of Gawker and then the collapse of digital media and the rest of written word journalism and everything. Just it's just gotten worse ever since. I mean, we're talking in a pretty amazing week for the collapse of of all kinds of journalistic institutions. Yeah. Now, um, like real death row stuff. I don't I don't anticipate the L.A. Times surviving the calendar year. Um, and oh, the name will the brand will. Yeah, it'll be some like vulture capitalist, yeah. you know, it'll be like I, L.A. Weekly is now. Yeah, I saw I saw uh, in the village voice which apparently still has some kind of zombie ownership. They're writing like weird epoch times content, propping up conservative politicians like to beat back rape charge. Like none of it makes sense. And it's the village voice, yeah. right? The, the place that started alt weekly alternative journalism in the fifties. It's, it's awful. And also having worked at the LA times, and trying to change things from within, you know, a place that sold for $1.5 billion in 2000. And was the most profitable newspaper probably in the history of America between 1965 and 1990. Never could adapt to the new reality. It was it's a success curse. When you're making that much money, you're that powerful. The people who work for you, including yourselves, are not going to solve the industry once the industry turns and changes. It's awful to see. But one of the good things about being a weird person who tries to create new stuff along the margins is that one out of every so many of them kind of stick. And you don't have to lash your own self to an old dying beast, you know? No, 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 no. And you can always create new stuff. This is something that, of course, I feel bad for all the people who've lost jobs over the, yeah, this week, 
last year, the last three years. But that was also the reality when I came to Prague and met you 33 years ago. All the PM papers were closing, afternoon papers by the hundreds. There were no journalism jobs. It was all over. It was all over then. It's always all over. 1990 was the year that it stopped. Um, and it just the the trend line has been going straight down ever since. The people who we staffed the paper with in Prague were people like you uh, and other people who had so much more impressive clips than we did. And we we're just like just out of college kids, but for the same reason. And the old structures, the way that those newspapers had now worked because they gotten so fat was that you had to like pass all the guild rules in order to get the job at the the, you know, the local podunk weekly, um, and they didn't adapt to being able to recognize weirder and more interesting talent. They're like, nope, got to follow the rules. And so those types of people would come out and like with a wilder look in their eye. And we got some incredible, incredible talent out there. People we had no connection with, but who couldn't get a job in, in uh, newspapers in America. Right. Or people like me who gave up their good job. And health insurance and oh, retirement man. fund and everything else. What was I, 24 or something? Yeah. I, don't need, I don't need that. Yeah. We can do that later. We'll do that another time. Yeah. Let's see. There was one more. Oh, there's one more thing I wanted to mention. Mm -hmm. Because this was the first time I realized that our enjoyable little scene in Los Angeles was bigger than we knew. It's when Nick Denton, who was guest lecturing as a journalism professor at UC Berkeley. Right. And it must have been six or eight months after September 11th, mid-2002, That's invited right. us to come up and speak to his graduate journalist class. And we and we we asked him, can we mention this on our our blogs? And he said, oh, yeah, of course. You know, I don't know how many of my students even know what a blog is. So we did. And like a 100 people rabble filled this classroom. Along with the I don't know 20 graduate journalism students. Because they knew us from from these blogs that we were doing from our low rent apartments. That was a shock to me. I just didn't realize there were that many people who would turn up in person in the flesh. I remember that uh, now that you mentioned it, because I'd forgotten. But uh, also when we were starting and talking about starting out the L.A. Examiner, hundreds of resumes of people oh, yeah. from all over the country. And this is even before it started getting press attention. Both those things were like, wait, what? And then also people, the early readers of those early blogs had a, just an amazing connection with all of us personally in a way that's only been replicated in my experience uh, on uh, podcasts because yeah. it, it, it hits you different in the years. And like people would mail us cookies. <laughs> you know, people used to send me vodka. It was fantastic. Oof. All right. It's going to cut us off. Uh, let me thank Matt Welch from We the Fifth podcast and also Reason Magazine. And I'll link to his things. The podcast is good. He's got three or four weirdos on there and sometimes a funny guest. Yep. There's much more to say about this, but I think we maybe said exactly the right amount. Exactly. Love it all. It's uh, it's fun to talk about and think about.
Desert Oracle Radio.